Welcome to the Artist Academy podcast, a place where we focus on the business side of art to help you attract more customers, increase profits, and ultimately live a life of creativity and financial freedom. I'm your host, Andrea Earhart, and this week's interview features a majorly successful illustrator, author, and fellow podcaster, Andy J. Pizza. Have you heard of him? <laughs> if you fancy lighthearted creativity mixed with some art business talk and a dash of internal inspiration, then you'll enjoy this chat with Andy. He has his hands in a number of things, and we talk about where his income is coming from, plus the benefits of diversifying. This is a friendly reminder to put your own creativity above the rat race of social media and other people's recommendations and client work and commissions. Andy reminds us that having your own unique, high-quality, niche product to market to customers is step one of the art money-making process. So listen to hear all about that, all of his thoughts on the things and how to go about creating your own niche area and why it's so important. Andy J. Pizza. Hello. Such an honor to have you on my podcast because you have such a successful podcast of your own. So for somebody who hasn't listened to your podcast yet, which there probably are a couple in this group, but can you give us a little bit of background about who you are and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. I'm Andy J. Pizza and I'm an illustrator. I've been doing illustration for clients since about 2008, working with all kinds of clients, tech people like YouTube and Google and that kind of thing, but also editorial, New York Times, that kind of thing. And then past five years, I've been a lot more invested in picture books. So I've had a handful of picture books come out over the past five years. And then I also have this podcast. And this podcast I do, Creative Pep Talk, has really been about sharing really everything in that Venn diagram between creativity and career and trying to make that work and trying to figure out best practices and share them in hopes that it helps other people. A big part of that has been being somebody with ADHD and needing to create my own path that worked for me when a lot of the paths that are presented to neurodivergent people don't really work for them or their brains. And that's rooted in my own struggles with trying to create a thriving life as a person like that, but also people like my mom who really struggled her whole life to figure it out. And then friends and other family members that are neurodivergent or just needed to take a different path and really struggled in the kind of system that we find ourselves in. Even after the first time my work was featured on a blog or the first time I got an illustration client, I think I was instantly emailing friends and family like, hey, you should do this. You should create a portfolio. These are the things you can do. And so I think over time, I just became obsessed with how are the things that are working so that I can do them again and then also so that I can help other people do similar things. Gotcha. Okay. So how did this creative life happen? How, what was your spark in the beginning that made you go into the arts? Yeah, I think I know that I've always been creative leaning. I think a lot of it comes down to, I don't hear enough people that are ADHD talking about how big of a factor boredom is. I think that one of the primary kind of experiences of ADHD people is how understimulating life is, <laughs> and especially like your everyday life. And so I think creativity is almost just a necessity for ADHD people. I wonder if, I think there's probably a thing, there probably is like some novel connection-making things that happen in an ADHD brain, but 
I wonder even more if it's less about a capacity for creativity and more like a necessity of I've got to figure out how not to lose my mind sat in this school classroom or on this road trip or whatever. And so I think I've always just been creative leaning. Most of my childhood, I was doing creative things, drawing, making fake radio shows, not unlike podcasts, making videos, making people laugh, doing that. And then for most of my childhood and teen years, I really wanted to go into like comedy or acting or something of that nature. And I wanted to do that, but I think the older I got, the more afraid of that. I just didn't know anybody that had done that. I lived in Indiana. I didn't have any family members that ever had any success in that. And I found illustration and design through a love of indie music that was a new discovery for myself at the time as a 16-year-old and just got really obsessed with the visual culture and also thought like, this design illustration thing looks like a job that I could do. And so that's really where it started and it just evolved from there. Okay, so you have a very specific style. I love it. Colorful, very illustrative. How did you land on that? And I'm curious if you did what we all did in the beginning and we just copied somebody and we tried to fit a different mold. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because honestly, it's really frustrating, I think, to live in a... Look, I'm not an economist. I don't have the answers to how we should organize ourselves as a society, economically speaking. So I think capitalism has a lot of problems and especially the stage that we're in right now. But and I, this is ADHD because I can't even remember what you were asking. I started going into capitalism and who knows what happened. What, what did you say? What was <laughs> the question? No, that, that's a perfect example of everything you've talked about. How very, did you find your very unique, fun style? And did you fall into... You know? Hilarious <laughs> that somehow I got onto capitalism when you asked me about my style. It's just ridiculous. How I found my style. No, the reason I went there was because I think because of being in this hyper-capitalistic state where everything has to make money. I think that there's an overemphasis on ownership of creative endeavors. Now, I'm all for ownership. I'm all for people trying to do the most original kind of works they can do. But it is unfortunate that we don't have more of a safe space starting out to do master studies and understand like where does this stuff come from and how did they find their style? And also just understand like, it's just crazy to me that you can watch videos and interviews of the greatest creators ever talking about, look, these are my influences. This is where I got this stuff. This is David Bowie. Just go look at David Bowie, like wax poetic on his influences. You can find a hundred clips and yet we still have this weird thing where we think every great artist were self-made and appeared out of the, It's just ridiculous. So anyway, I'm glad you started there. I started by just trying to mash up my favorite illustrator stuff, put my own spin on it, try to make it about stuff that's personal to me. But of course, starting out, I was much less successful at that than I am now, hopefully. <laughs> and I think two things helped me in developing my style. I think one is I really like uh, I nerd out about things like emergence, which is the idea that like how you get atoms that come together and they create more than the sum of their parts. H2O has like water has qualities that you can't find in hydrogen or oxygen. So 
It's not in those things. So if you keep going up, that happens all the way to like consciousness where it's like you can't point into someone's brain. There's them. You can just see all these neurons. So I think of style like that, where it's like style isn't a thing that happens in a piece of work. It's a thing that emerges after making tons and tons of stuff. It has this kind of quality where the more stuff you make, the more that there's patterns. And then I heard Austin Kleon talk about, what's his name, Hitchcock, saying that style is just self-plagiarism. So I think about that too, like style sometimes is less about, oh, I need to make my mark and I need to make it recognizable to me and more like, I want to focus on, in this next piece, I really want to figure out how to do the concept in a particular way. And instead of doing all the other stuff from scratch, I'm just going to take from myself the qualities I liked in the last pieces and then focus all of my creative energy on this other little piece. So if you're a filmmaker, that might look like, instead of Wes Anderson, in some ways you're like, oh, what a recognizable style. But is it possible that he's just on the next movie, he doesn't want to focus on how do we set up these shots? How do we do color? How are we going to cast this thing? Let's just do the same cast same color, same shots, whatever, just get all that stuff out of the way so that I can just spend my time focusing on this one little creative question or one little thing that I want to work on in this next thing. So that I think those ideas probably tend to explain how I think that built up over time, if any of it made sense. I don't know. (laughs) It's a lot of weird (laughs) Yeah, that kind of goes hand in hand. I was listening to your recent podcast about social media and it's like putting your energy, maybe not towards finding a brand, like you're saying, but putting towards like the story. And so like you're saying with the social media, not putting your energy towards making a really cool video, but putting it towards like creating the craft, putting it there. That kind of goes along the same way. It seems like you've done a lot with that. Yeah, I think that idea on social media is just that. I feel like social media, there's two things. One is if you need to optimize for getting more people to know about your work, social media can be an avenue for that, especially if you're intentional about it. But ultimately, I think what happens more often than not is that we waste all of our best creativity trying to get discovered and we don't have a product for when they do discover us. And so thinking you're going to reverse engineer and figure out how to make money on all these people that know about your work after the fact, I've just seen too many people, really creative, talented people put in insane amounts of time to get millions of people to know about their work only to figure out like they have no idea what they would sell them. So I think about how there's a lot of different pieces. And I also think about how I just was writing about that idea again since I created that episode and thinking about how we don't value our own creativity. And yet these billion dollars of these platforms are the value of our creativity. It's the value of our free work that's making these channels interesting. It's literally like HBO selling their channel and they didn't pay for any of the TV. Like that's what, Instagram is. That's what TikTok is. It's, they don't do anything. They usually, I camp out in a space where hopefully there's a level of nuance and not black and white. I'm not anti-social media. I've done a lot on my podcast about the ways that social media has made a big impact on my work and the ways that I've taken it seriously. And so I still think there's probably decent reasons to be on there. But on the flip side, 
I also think it's changed a lot to the point where it's basically become, with the move to like short form video, I feel like all these platforms have become uh, public access TV. It's just like C-SPAN, televangelists, pranks, like face plants. That's the stuff on America's Funniest Videos. That's the stuff on free, on infomercials, Home Shopping Network. I just think it, that's another thing like, we keep thinking, oh, it's brand new. Check out, it's totally new things. Yeah, people are going to do the same thing because it's a projection of our inner world. So anyway, I'm sorry for going off <laughs> no, on it. But that's just been, I've been thinking a lot about. Yeah, no, it's the, the idea of doing what they want you to do. Like what what gets the most views on that platform? It's okay, I, I will do that. And I was thinking about this and I get, because it, my mind is constantly in an art commission-based mindset. I'll do whatever my customers want with murals. And so I'm already in that. Okay, what do you want me to do? I'll do it to make money and whatnot. So it's the same kind of thing with social media. And I'm applying for a big project in St. Louis where they said, do whatever you want. And I'm as I'm applying... I want their input. And I'm like, no, get that out of my head. Like, I just do whatever you want to do. It's just like a, such a, it's such a mindset. And so I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, it is. I think that being in touch with your own taste and allowing that to inform what you want to see, I think that is the job of the creator. That's the hardest part is you're in the driver's seat of figuring out what it is you want your work to be. And that's, really difficult. It's a very difficult thing to do. And that's why they're asking you, what should it be? Because you're the artist, but it's not easy. Yeah. To switch up topics real quick, I'm very curious. And I was talking to some of my students about this too. Like you have a lot of things going on and I'd love to talk about all of your different things that you're doing, all, all the different revenue streams of income. What's your top thing? What's your bread and butter? That's a great question. I feel like I will try to answer it, but I do think I'm about to do my meeting next week with my finance, like accountant team and all that. And so I think after I do that, I could answer the question a little bit better because honestly, this year for I know a lot of creators has been very weird and especially in the podcasting space. So on the podcasting side, if you're involved in that industry at all, that it's been a big year of change. In the past, a decent chunk of my income would come from podcast sponsorship. And yet this year, we didn't have hardly in any of our inventory full because that advertising space just changed so much. And so we've recovered a little bit towards the end of the year, but that chunk is just nothing like what it's been for the past three or four or five years. So that's a piece. Another piece is client work is usually a big part of my ecosystem. But client work and illustration is part of the reason why I diversified so many in so many different directions is because client work, similar to sponsorship, is a very volatile type of way to build your practice. I think it's a great way to start your practice to have those big chunks of money, like B2B, client-based, breakthroughs because just a few decision makers can totally change your year. And that's a really small target that's much easier to hit and hit quickly than trying to get a thousand true fans. Like you only need 10 true fans if they're paying you $10,000 each or whatever, however the math works out. But I think building your entire practice on that is risky because you're the last link in the chain. So like, 
whenever, if the economy gets rough or there's changes in the president or whatever, there's so many things that can mean like 2016 was a terrible client year. 2020, when we have the pandemic, should have been a terrible client year, but it was one of the best client years because it just, it's not completely in your hands. So 2023 was not a good year for client work. I work closely with my agent. He works in this studio. He represents a handful of other artists. And just from seeing a little bit behind the scenes of that, I know that client work wasn't a great earner for most creators in 2023. And I, and just from conversations I've had. And so I think that client work goes all over the place. Sponsors can go all over the place. And so this year, really, I probably focused most on the kids' books side. And kids' books, I think, are... I've had a few good deals in the past three or four years, but they're also an investment. The advance really, even if you get a great deal, it doesn't really justify the amount of time you need to spend in terms of creating the thing and promoting the thing and all that stuff. So I haven't answered your question. I gave you a bunch of stuff. I would say probably a third of my business right now is my, which I haven't even mentioned, my products for selling posters and pens and stickers and stuff to do with some of my kids' book properties as well as my podcast. Probably a third of it is public speaking and podcast related. And then probably a third of it is illustration related. That's probably pretty accurate for the past 12 months. But those numbers, they fluctuate a lot. And I think that maybe the biggest takeaway is just knowing that having a few different things going on and having a few different ways of earning a living is pretty important because that's just the nature of how things ebb and flow. Yeah, I agree. So I back to you and you said you have an agent. I want to tap on that because I love that sure. idea. It's a lot of artists yeah. are listening. They're like, wait, how do I get an agent? I can hear them. So they yeah. so how did you come about doing that? Why did you decide to do that? And if somebody wanted to, how would they do it? So loaded question. Yeah. Okay. That's a big question. There's so many different ways I could handle that. The first thing I would say though is really understanding why do you want an agent? Because when I started out, I've had a handful of agents over the years. And I think initially, when I was just starting out looking for agents, I know I was doing that because I thought they were the magic bullet to get all the work that I wanted. And the truth is, I don't know of many agents in commercial work. I'm trying to be careful because I have a book agent, I have my illustration agent, and I've worked with different people in the fields of public speaking and, and what have you. And from my understanding, the experience across the board is dramatically different. And so if I was telling somebody who was trying to do client work and was trying to get that off the ground, I would say, do not rush to get an agent because the way that they're going to help you is mostly with getting better deals in terms of the deals that are coming in, helping you manage the understanding the legal side, setting expectations like client liaison, like all that stuff. I think those are really great reasons to have a, a agent, but you really only need those things if you have an amount of work that you need somebody to help you with that stuff. However, it's so dramatically different from one industry to the next. If you're working in books, for instance, I would say, use your materials to pitch to agents rather than publishers because 
agents really are the key to getting any of your books looked at in the publishing world. Mm -hmm. I did several different kinds of like novelty books and such, a handful before I had an agent. And I really regret not having them from the beginning because it's just a total game changer. And so I think it depends on a couple of things. I think understanding why people in your sphere have agents is really important. And whether that aligns with your particular goals, I think those are the first steps. Very cool. I had never really looked at that. So that's very eye-opening. Awesome. Okay. The main topics on this podcast are how to make money as an artist. So what are tips that you have for artists to make money doing what you're doing specifically in the illustration business? Okay. If I was just starting out, like I said, and I was just trying to get the ball rolling, I would focus all of my energy on just getting clients. So you can think about it in any industry. You can literally, you can think about it like you're opening a restaurant. If you're opening a restaurant, nobody's ever heard of you. You have no idea how long it's going to be until you can get, until you can sustain on direct to customer, like people buying your lunch every day. When you really have no idea what that looks like, you need to over invest in catering and corporate clients and bigger one-off purchases, events, that kind of stuff. And I think the same thing is true for illustration. So I think if you're getting it off the ground and you want to kickstart it quick, I wouldn't start a shop. I wouldn't start selling your stuff. I would actually, I think you can move to that over time and that can be a big piece. Like I said, now it's about 30% of what I do probably, or 25%. It's a big, decent chunk of what I do. But I've been doing that shop for 10 years and it's only in the past few years become a relevant part of my creative practice. Why? Just because it's just math, I think. It's just math of it's much easier to convince 10 people to give you a job, a shot, purchase what you're selling than it is 20,000 people. Mm. It's just a lot harder to get. That's just, I think that's just pure numbers. It's just hard to get on the radar of that many people. The only way to make it stack up is just literally the numbers, just scaling it. So what I would do is, this is exactly what I would do. And I do this to a degree in, in some ways, but it's not my primary focus anymore. But what I would do is I would pick an industry that is not illustration, that you feel you have a special connection to. Maybe your parents are doctors. Maybe you've got a passion for psychology. Maybe you love podcasting, like this is my zone. Whatever it might be, maybe you love politics, whatever it is. Pick an industry and then do a project that is catering to that industry. Maybe it's a podcast like mine where you do a new illustration for every episode and you interview doctors because you're doing the doctor thing, like whatever it is. Create a niche that is not based on how crazy relevant and how incredibly talented you are. Like your competitive edge cannot be that you're just better than all other illustrators. Because it's just, this is not going to happen. What you want to do is, if I go to an illustration conference and I think, you know what, I'm going to illustrate, I'm going to take notes and do kind of illustrative notes and I'm going to post them to my stories and tag the conference and just start getting on the radars of all these people. 
I'm like 99% of the people that go to that conference are drawing the notes. That's where you're at, right? When I go to a podcasting conference, I'm the only one doing that. And guess what? I post all of them, I tag them, they reshare them because nobody else is doing that. And then they hire me a couple months later to do a project because I'm the illustrator. Illustration then becomes my niche. It's not like how good my illustration is. It's just that I'm one of the most successful podcasters that is an illustrator, which is, it's not even impressive. It's not like some crazy thing that I'm bragging about. I'm just saying that because I've really leaned into that little tiny Venn diagram, a lot of interesting things have happened. And that's what I would do. I would try to figure out what's your, where are you going to be the only illustrator in that field? Really spend money and time investing in that. And, and time meaning creating work and value in that sphere and try to drum up 10 true fans that will pay you five to $10,000 to do a bigger project. And you'll be off to the races. You can do that pretty, I say pretty quick, meaning I've been in this for 15 years. I'm talking, you can do that in a year. You can, in a year, you can get to a place where you're pulling in those kind of clients. And then once you have that going, you can start building out from there. So true. I love that. I heard a piece of advice that was similar to that a long time ago, and it so makes sense. Yeah. It's so hard to be the best artist out there. But so, yeah, exactly. But it's like for, I was thinking of different examples. It's so somebody, if somebody wants to be a muralist, but they also went to school for dental, it's like, how about you yeah. can make your yeah. connections yeah. in the dental field and then you could be the muralist for all the dental offices in your complete area. It's like making, merging your two things together. Something to think about. Yeah. And also it's good. Another thing that I think really gets in my way, so I'll speak for myself, but I'm sure that I'm not alone, is just the ego of, I don't want to be the illustrator that does dentist offices. I get that. I totally get that. But guess what? You don't have to be for very long. You do that for a year. Guess what? How many people go to the dentists? How many people like they're, they're, it's going to evolve from there. When I started the podcast, it was very illustration focused. And then over time, I got to talk with actors and comedians and writers and all these different types of people. I think it's having a focus for a period of time is how ideas spread. I know there's some truth to this, but I think that it's undervalued. Like how many creators, how many musicians, how many, whatever, people that really got somewhere interesting. They always credit like, man, it was just the right time and the right place. And I was just part of this little genre that was popping off. And I just have, yeah, that's true. But that's true for every person that ever made it. Every person that ever made it had the advantage of being in this little pocket. And guess what? It's just the same as a city. Oh, you open the coffee shop, right in the area that was starting to develop and now that's gone? No, that's established and now there's another area popping off. Now there's, an, oh, it's just always is cycling. You can look for and find those little pockets, those little places where you can be the only person doing what you do in that zone. There's always opportunities for that kind of thing. So true, go where the other artists are not... Yeah. Just shout to the Instagram universe. It's like you could tag specific dental places or whatever on Instagram. Love it. 
Yeah. We're about to wrap this up. This has been great. Do you have any last bits of advice to give to anyone? Maybe like who you would give to your younger self that you wish you knew? Yeah, that I'll tell you circles back to what we talked about at the start. I would just say so much of, I think for validation sake, and I don't know, all kinds of reasons, there's a lot of pressure to get more people to know about your work. Whether it's going viral or being just pouring all this time into social media and all that kind of thing. And I think that I could list a lot of different reasons why that might be, but I would say don't do any of that if you don't have a clear idea of what your product is. I kept thinking about this. I talked about this in this recent episode of my show where my dad grew up in a small town in Indiana in the Midwest. He didn't grow up, he grew up with like very limited access to any other cultures or anything else. And what I'm about to say is not an an example of culture, okay? I just want to say that. But for him, it was a stretch. So my dad now loves chicken teriyaki. Now it's still the American version of this thing. It's not anything culturally authentic, but he loves it and He only tried it because at the mall we used to go to, they would give out samples. And so when you go show up on social media and you're out there pushing your work, trying to get your stuff seen, like you're out there literally giving people samples of your work, but you don't have a restaurant. What is your product? What? How are they going to pay you? How are you going to make money on this? Don't do anything until you understand that. What are you trying to sell? How do you have an, like murals, if it's murals, okay, what does that look like? What are the prices? How many people need to buy them? Working out all that, all the details and making sure that everything you do funnels back to whatever that product is. Or it won't be a business. Yeah. And having examples of it and having a framework for how people hire you and how those numbers add up to what you need to do to make this work. Yeah. That's what I would do. I think it's very easy for me even now to get lost trying to get more people to look at my stuff when I'm like, why though? Why? <laughs> what, what can I do if they do see Yeah, it? so true. When I get on coaching calls with artists, I'm like, what do you want to do? They're like, I don't know. I just want to paint. I'm like, but what do you specifically want to paint? And they're like, I don't know. I'm like, would you rather paint this or that? We do a game of, would you rather paint colorful balloons or would you rather paint this? And we narrow it down. Oh, actually, I would really love to paint pets. Okay, great. Now we have something to start off with. But yeah, having your product clear. It's so hard because I do that almost every year. I'm like, okay, do I want to keep doing what I'm doing or do I want to do something else? I don't know. Do I Have I gotten lost in the commission part of this or... Yeah, it's just something to think about as we're coming up on the new year. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. It's really cool to meet you. And you have a podcast of your own, The Creative Pep Talk. So everybody go check that out. I'll link to it. And if you like this podcast, you'll like his as well. So I highly recommend it. But thank you again. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Andrea. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Artist Academy podcast. If you like this kind of business talk with tips to help you attract customers, actually get sales, and all the back-end business quote secrets, I want to encourage you to join our Artist Academy Advanced membership. I have a ton of art and business content for you to learn everything you need to start and grow your art business. I've never done this before. But for the holiday season, I'm offering a completely free trial for the entire month of December. 
So join and not pay one single anything until January 1st. I'm offering this because I know how hectic the holiday season is for everyone. We all have enough on our plate as it is, but I also know that I have a ton of fourth quarter sales strategies within the membership that will help you make even more sales during the Christmas season. So join the membership for free this month, then kick off the starting of the year with a bang with our art challenges and all new painting tutorials and all the things that are coming in January. And if you want to cancel before January 1 and only absorb the December free content, you totally can. <laughs> there are absolutely no minimums to join or leave at any time. Stay or leave when you're ready. I'm also offering a completely free month because I'm confident in my product. I know that when people join, they stay for six months to a year and grow their art business with us in the community for that amount of time. And it's so fun to see people start off, especially in January with that fire and they watch the tutorials and they put things in action and they have this community backing them to talk pricing and strategy and all the things. And it really helps. And I've seen it because it'll be five years this spring that I've had the membership going and five years of watching artists grow. I was thinking this year, I'm like, heck, I'll just give a whole free month because why not? You can go to artistacademy.co. There's a link here. It's not .com because to buy the .com was just insanely expensive. Somebody bought it up a long time ago and they're wanting thousands and thousands of dollars for it. So I was like, whatever, I'm just gonna do artistacademy.co. So if you go to artistacademy.co or just click the link in this podcast description, you can join us for a whole free month of December. I'll see you inside of the Academy and next week for another episode of the Artist Academy podcast.